The other one is actually maybe the market is just too big. Like it's really difficult, even when both sides really want to solve this problem, to kind of like resolve these these sorts of issues. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January twentieth, two thousand twenty-two. Today we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. In December twenty twenty. Ten state attorneys general sued Google, alleging that the tech giant had created an illegal monopoly over online advertising. The lawsuit is ongoing, and just this January, new allegations in the state's complaint were freshly unsealed. The states have accused Google of tinkering with its ad auctions to mislead publishers and online advertisers and expand its own power in the ad marketplace. For what it's worth, Google told the Wall Street Journal that the complaint was quote full of inaccuracies and lacks legal merit. The complaint touches on a crucial debate about the online advertising industry. Does it work? To understand more, Evelyn Duek and I spoke with Tim Huang, Substack's general counsel and the author of the book Subprime Attention Crisis: Advertising and the Time Bomb at the Heart of the Internet. Tim argues that online advertising, which underpins the structure of the internet as we know it today, is a house of cards. That advertisers aren't nearly as good as they claim to be at monetizing our attention, even as they keep marketing it anyway. So, how worried should we be about this structure potentially collapsing? If ads can't convince us to buy things, what does that mean about our understanding of the internet more broadly? And what possibilities are there for designing a better online space? It's the Lawfare Podcast, January twentieth. Why the online advertising market is broken. Your book is titled "The Subprime Attention Crisis: Advertising and the Time Bomb at the Heart of the Internet." So, why don't we start with you giving us a nutshell summary of your argument and what you mean by the analogy uh, with the subprime mortgage crisis that led to the two thousand and eight GFC? So, yeah. First off, thanks for having me on the show.、Um, I think the way to think about the book、um, is to really start from sort of the role of advertising on the internet. We're talking about sort of an enormous kind of economy、um, that funds、uh, sort of the marquee names of our everyday experience on the web, right? If you're talking about a Google or a Facebook, these are companies that are by and large kind of funded through sort of online advertising. And、uh, the specific kind of advertising that happens online is a kind of advertising that's known in the industry as programmatic advertising. So this isn't like Mad Men, right? We're basically talking about these algorithms that sort of buy and sell attention at incredibly fast rates, and it happens sort of millions and millions of times a day,、uh, every day. And this is by and large how the internet has been funded, really, for the last、uh, two decades or so. And the the core claim of the book、um, is really that this market, which we've been led to believe is incredibly impactful, powerful, can target ads to change people's behavior, you know, all these sorts of things,、um, may on a fundamental level just not work. Actually, that what we believe about sort of the effectiveness of ads may be, when you start digging into it,、um, really more of a, a myth than everything, anything else. And you know, one of the reasons I sort of think about it, kind of in the context of something like the 2008 mortgage crisis, is that we have very kind of similar dynamics playing out, where we have a marketplace which is being sort of hotly inflated by a number of sort of very actors with, I think, conflicting interests,、um, and we have an asset that's like the mortgages in that crisis becoming less and less valuable all the time. And and for me, that says that says bubble. 
right? Um, and the book kind of goes into making that argument and then ultimately kind of sketching out, you know, what the implications are for the broader sort of web and society. So you describe the the myth of how we imagine these things work. Can you sketch that out in more detail? What What is the, you know, in the, the perfectly functioning version of this online advertising ecosystem, the the myth that you're trying to puncture here how how do we imagine that it works yeah absolutely so the analogy or the comparison i always draw is that when we hear about sort of online advertising we think about this like hyper precise behavioral mind control array that like fires from space right and can like get someone right at the point at which they're about to think about buying a new casper mattress right and and get them to to buy that mattress and there's a couple parts to that fairy tale, right? One of them is that you have accurate data about people that like when I'm targeting to Tim sitting here in the Northeast of the United States, that I really am accessing Tim, this person, right? Uh, The second part of the myth is basically the idea that once I see the ad, that I am influenced by the messaging in that ad uh, and then I I go do whatever the advertisement wants me to do, right? I go vote for a candidate, right? Or I go buy this product. And it turns out that both sides of that story are sort of fundamentally incorrect or certainly a lot more muddy uh, when you start actually digging into it. So for one, a lot of the data that we have about people, that advertisers have about people is, is inaccurate. So we have some studies that suggest that about 40% of online advertising data may be inaccurate. So an advertiser thinks he's advertising to Tim sitting here in the Northeast of the United States, but he's actually advertising to Sarah who lives you know, somewhere in Europe. Another problem that often happens too is that the ad may actually not really reach a real person at all. So some studies suggest that one in three dollars that are spent on online ads uh, are lost to fraud, right? So it basically goes, ultimately delivers that ad to you know a bot, right? Or someone who's being paid to click on an ad. So I think that's the first problem, right? Is there's questions about whether or not even an ad can reach a real person. Then there's a question of whether or not, okay, you actually reach a real person. Does it actually influence their behavior? And again, we we have these real questions as to whether or not that's the case, right? So, you know, one anecdote I love saying is telling talking about is, you know, when banner ads first made an appearance on the internet, the click-through rate for those ads was something like 50%. And the average now is something like 0.03% if you're lucky, right? And so we've seen this incredible multi-fold decrease in the effectiveness of, of whether or not people pay attention to ads in a relatively short period of time. You know, I think this is really interesting study that was done that also suggests that we may actually be fooled by sort of correlation and causation here, where advertisers are so good at targeting their ads that they actually target their ads to people who would have bought their product anyways, right? And so they put the ad in, they see the person buy the product, and they say, hey, this ad actually worked. But there's actually real questions as to whether or not there is a causal impact on ads. And so I guess to just briefly sum up, right, there's two parts of this fairy tale that we can actually reach real people and that those people are actually influenced by ads break down at at several levels. I mean, that decline in the click-through rates is a totally insane statistic. Um, that's that's absolutely amazing. What's driving that? Why aren't why were people clicking uh, so much more than they are now? There's a couple of views on this. Um, you know, I think one of them is uh, people have just become desensitized through ads, right? So they see banners online now; they they don't click on them because they know that they're ads. You know, another one is that people are blocking ads a lot more than they used to, right? So that the ad is actually delivered, but it's actually never seen by the person who's sitting in front of the browser. That's another reason why. Uh, Another one, which is a really intriguing thesis that I've been kind of chasing after and would love to write like an article or an essay about is 
you know, maybe when these banner ads first appeared, they were just novel on the internet. And that's why we clicked on them. And so, you know, I think the, the, that's such a kind of funny thesis for me, because you kind of think about like the first person ever to see a billboard and they're like, oh man, that big guy on that board over there told me to smoke cigarettes. I should go buy cigarettes. And so, you know, one view on this is basically that like online ads may have seemed really effective in the early days just because they were new. Uh, and now they're becoming like every other form of advertising, which is we're, we're tired of them. We, we know when they're, they're, they're around and we choose to ignore them. So if this entire ad market is so broken, why isn't the market itself fixing it? So, you know, why are advertisers continuing to pump so much money into this giant ecosystem uh, if it's just not working? You know, in your book, you reference the famous uh, John Wanamaker quote that half the money I spent on advertising (laughs) is wasted. The trouble is I just don't know which half. But like, it seems like we could be in a situation now where we do know which half, you know, advertisers track in minute detail where their ads appear, how many views they get, how many click-throughs they get, and then how many purchases they get after those Mm click-throughs. Why aren't the advertisers kicking up a fuss or paying less? Why is this bubble persisting? So I think there's two things to say here. You know, know, the first one is I would actually challenge the idea that people are not pulling their money out. Um, We've seen some really, really interesting cases in the last few years. Um, Procter & Gamble is one, right, where they pulled $200 million out of the digital ad spending and reported that there was no change in their bottom line. Another recent one that happened last year was that Uber, right, discovered that something on the order of $100 million of their ad spend was being lost to sort of fraud or otherwise wasn't actually having an impact, right? And, and they similarly, right, cut off that spend. So I do think that they, we are actually seeing advertisers become more concerned, right, about what's actually occurring in the market. That being said, I mean, I think one of the reasons we keep seeing money flow into the market is a couple of reasons. I, I do think that one of them, though, is that we've actually built up so much credibility around ads that it's very difficult for companies to change course right now. And, and this is actually a little bit similar to the 2008 crisis, where it's basically like you spent so much money on uh, collateralized uh, debt obligations, right, that to change course right now would be, would be a really big problem, particularly if you're being paid huge amounts of money to continue doing it. So I do think that there's kind of conflicting incentives and people have built sort of careers and reputations on this in a way that kind of locks the market into this perverse sort of outcome. Uh, A final factor that I'll I'll just quickly name too is I do think that there's also this really interesting impact where a lot of these businesses are also sort of online businesses are simultaneously sort of destroying or eliminating a lot of the companies that would be competitors in the space, right? So you think about like, okay, well, in the past, maybe you could advertise in radio and you could advertise you know, through programmatic ads. As these older mediums disappear, that money still needs to flow places, right? And so one theory too is that you know, the money ultimately flows to where it can flow, which is online ads. So one recent example of this ecosystem not, or this market not working the way it should is in some really interesting allegations filed in a lawsuit the listeners might have heard of, which is uh, filed by multiple uh, state attorney generals against Google and Facebook, accusing them of of running a monopoly um, or of Google of running a monopoly and then of sort of coordinating with Facebook to rig ad auctions. And there are some new details about that recently that um, have been unsealed in the complaint having to do with the specifics. I don't want to give you a pop quiz on on the allegations um, in this litigation, but I am curious if you could talk about it a little because I think it's maybe a good case study for your argument and perhaps even vindication. Do you, <laughs> do you read it that way? 
Uh, I do, yeah. And, and I think they'll actually, it, just as a quick coda before kind of directly going at your question, right? Like, I do think that the whole sort of framework of antitrust law in this space is, I think, very, very interesting. I'm like very bullish on more people becoming huge nerds about programmatic advertising, in large part because it's really wrapped up in what you need in order to bring sort of an antitrust case under US law. Like, one of the traditional problems has been okay, what's the harm to the consumer? Uh, for these so-called monopolies like Facebook and Google, if consumers get their services for free, right? Because the typical conception of harm is that, look, you're paying more than you would otherwise. And, you know, I think in some ways, you know, you see regulators, you see state AGs getting very excited about sort of all of the shenanigans going on in programmatic ads, because it's a clear case of um, sort of anti-competitive conduct that really does sort of damage a business on a dollars and cents level. And so we are seeing, right, you know, I think certainly the FTC is kind of interested in this direction. Um, and I think is certainly present in the case that you mentioned. And, you know, just to kind of quickly sum up for the listeners, the case there is a set of allegations, which if true, I do see as a, f- a form of uh, vindication for sure, because it suggests that essentially Google for an extended period of time uh, was running an auction for their online ads that basically sort of defrauded both ad buyers and ad sellers, right? Where Google would basically say to one side, you sold your ad for this amount. Uh, and then they go to the buyer and they said, oh, you bought the ad for another amount, right? And then they were actually capturing the difference between those two numbers and then using that money elsewhere to sort of manipulate the outcomes in the marketplace. And you know, this is actually really interesting because again, one of the claims of programmatic advertising is look, it's a competitive market. You can sort of capture attention at a really efficient rate. And, and it's also ultimately like effective, right? And I think you know, what the case demonstrates um, is the sort of tantalizing possibility that some of these biggest, the biggest companies in this uh, space are actually engaging in a kind of uh, sort of fraud around the market and that what we sort of think we know about online ads uh, may not actually be the case. So yeah, I'm, I'm watching the case very closely and I find it super interesting. So sort of looking at this case, it seems, you know, like, it, you know, the word that you just used, which seems pretty appropriate is fraud, uh, you know, charging <laughs> one people could say, yeah. <laughs> one amount and, uh, and uh, when they think they're paying another amount and, and, and um, keeping the, the, the difference. And it just, I mean, it's it's amazing. Uh, it seems very um, uh, sort of bold of Google to kind of do this scheme, and I wonder how it could get away with that. I mean, obviously, it, its outsized power in the market means that it can sort of throw its weight around a bit. But it it strikes me that, that a big part of this here is the complete opacity of what's going on. Um, sure. And I'm curious if you could talk about that. Why is this market so opaque? How did it take so long for this kind of thing to come to light? Definitely. Yeah. And I think this is actually, if the case is a kind of vindication, it's it's sort of a vindication on this sort of pillar of argument in the book. Um, the, the book sort of makes the argument that like, look, one of the reasons a bubble can persist in a marketplace is because the market is very opaque. It's very difficult to tell what's going on in it, if you're getting a fair price, you know, those types of questions. Um, it's very even difficult to know whether or not your ad actually reached the real person, right? And, you know, one of the sort of claims in the book is, look, the fact that these sort of big companies are sort of monopolies in effect means that it's very difficult for people to pressure them to create transparency in their marketplaces, right? That they can sort of get away with telling you facts about the market 
that may just just turn out not to be true, right? Um, you know, the other famous incident of this before um, the recent litigation was sort of Facebook's claim a number of years ago that you know users by and large were pivoting to video, right? That there's huge amounts of time being spent watching video on Facebook. And if you were in journalism, you know that that resulted in you know huge shifts in who was getting hired and who was getting fired. Later, it turned out actually that they were overstating those rates by a, a huge margin, right? Um, and regardless of whether or not you think that was sort of intentional or not, you know, I think one outcome is to demonstrate that it's really difficult to understand and verify the claims of of these companies ultimately. And so, to kind of return to the the immediate litigation, yeah, I think Google was able to get away with it because you know it turns out that the market is not very transparent. Google says, "Well, you sold the ad to this person at this amount of money." You know, it's very difficult to get any more diligence from them. It's difficult to get any more information from them. And so, you know, one of the things I say in the book, which I think is worth reiterating, is, you know, we are sort of fooled by the way online advertising looks, which is, okay, wow, we have all this incredible data about who and when someone clicks on an ad. But I think on, at the same time, you know, it's sort of like a, a mile deep, but an inch wide, right? Where it's actually very difficult to tell things about the market as a whole. Um, which does make me concerned about you know whether or not the market as a whole is, is a kind of bubble. Yeah, as a journalist, I, I bear the scars of the pivot to video. The video, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe maybe not myself, but but on behalf of all all my colleagues who were uh, scarred by that. Uh, so maybe we could talk about that a little more because sure. I, I think it's a good example of how. You know, the way we've described it, it sounds like this is basically a market that's perhaps propped up by a lot of chicanery. And it's very easy to say, well, screw it. Just get rid of this. Why do we need it? You know, what's the importance? And the pivot to video is actually a demonstration of just how how far reaching the effects of tiny changes can mm. be and why the the collapse of an ad market or changes in the market could actually have really detrimental effects on journalism. So could you just spell out a little bit more of the details of that? And then I'm, I'm curious if you think I'm, I'm right about the way that I've framed it. No, I think it is right. And, you know, I, I do think that, like, again, this is, I think, one of the comparisons to the 2008 crisis is we have an economy that is now, like, intertwined with all these other parts of society, right? And so, you know, I do have friends who, you know, I think would rightly say like they're they're ad anarchists, right? They're like, look, I don't really care if these companies get defrauded a couple million dollars. You know, if Mark Zuckerberg is short a few billion, he'll he'll be fine, right? Which is, I think, all well and good. The problem is that basically this market has become intertwined in like, for example, things like journalism, right? So that a lot of journalism and media is funded through the programmatic ad ecosystem, right? So when we talk about this market being a bubble, you know, I think I'm concerned not necessarily because Mark Zuckerberg's going to have less money. I am more concerned about, okay, what are all of the other media businesses that rests on the continued, you know, vitality of this this market? Two other things that I think find uh, that that I find interesting, you know, and that that make me concerned about the long reaching or far reaching impact of of sort of a crash here. Um, you know, I think one of them is, you know, you think about all the free services that we rely on on a day to day basis. Um, one of the nice things about ads is that it does make services very available. Um, you worry about a world in which, okay, the market crashes and suddenly a lot, a lot of things that weren't subscription become subscription all of a sudden. Well, that has huge impacts on who can afford to pay and who can't afford to pay. The, the final one, which is near and dear to my heart, just given some of the work I've done in the past, is um, that a lot of these big companies now subsidize basic research using the money that they get through ads, right? So 
you know, Google's DeepMind, right? The division that, you know, famously created this Go playing, you know, AI algorithm, you know, that's not a profit center for the company, right? And it's largely funded through programmatic ads. And so one of the worries here is, okay, well, maybe there's actually parts of basic research, right? That are now suddenly tied to this ecosystem um, that that really do make us kind of worry about the the, the impact of the a crash in the market. Yeah, so I want to actually dig into that a little bit more because I'm curious why exactly we should care so much that the ad market might implode. You know, mm. wouldn't it be great from so many people's perspective <laughs> if the sort of the sham underlying Google and Facebook's products was exposed and they sure. went belly up? Um, so many people are angry at these companies. I mean, pretty much everyone is angry at these companies and they are really big, mm. but are they really too big to fail in the same sense that the banks were too big to fail, that they're like, central to the regular functioning of society and need to be supported to keep the economy afloat, um, would it really sort of impact the average person if this whole online advertising ecosystem for you know, Ray-Bans and fake Ray-Bans um, <laughs> didn't operate anymore. You know, at one point in your book, you write, uh, there is, if anything, a strong ethical imperative to allow the collapse of global surveillance capitalism <laughs> rather than attempting to save it because it might clear the deck for something better to emerge. So sure. Doesn't that mean bursting the bubble is a good thing? Yeah. I, I, so, so again, like the question is, okay, are we okay with just blowing up the ecosystem as it is, right? Or do we want to kind of proceed in a more, you know, graduated fashion, right? And I think reasonable minds can differ on that question. But I do think that, you know, one of the reasons I'm skeptical about the idea of saying, okay, let's just let it blow up, right? Or let's like intentionally blow it up is that I think if you don't really come up with strong alternatives, uh, there's the worry that this economy will sort of just reassert itself over time, right? So there's one vision, which is, okay, the economy blows up. The the Silicon Valley is kind of in the doldrums for about a decade. Um, and then we're basically like, okay, let's just reimplement that same system again. So I, I think if we're worried about persistent change, we have to kind of go in with a plan. A second one is, I think, just about the human consequences of this, right? Which is, okay, we do live in a world where large segments of the media are dependent on this pretty perverse market, right? You know, I think the notion of just saying, okay, well then blow it up and they'll have to figure it out. I, I think for me, you know, raises questions about the sort of human cost of that kind of transition. And so, you know, what I advocate for the book is basically like, are there ways of deflating this bubble in a way that makes a transition a little bit more possible? Uh, I'm definitely not a fan of the idea that these companies are too big to fail in the sense that they're untouchable. That being said, I, I also felt the same way about the 2008 crisis, which is that the banks were not too big to fail uh, and that you know we, we probably should have treated them a little bit more harshly in that, that particular incident. So yeah, that, that's kind of my, my thought on it. So this whole framing is implicitly clashing with, uh, I think, what may be the predominant argument about targeted advertising today, which is that it's sort of all powerful, you know, uh, advertisers, companies can see everything we do and target things personally to us. And that makes people easy to manipulate for both commercial and political reasons. That is obviously at odds with the argument that you're making here, which is that a lot of this just isn't really working at all. It's a bubble. It's propped up by money that's going nowhere. So I'm interested in in what you think of that original narrative that I sketched out. And then also, you know, why you think that narrative that ads are so powerful persists if the data shows that targeted advertising just kind of sucks. <laughs> 
so I don't know if I can sort of count the wins that I had on the book. I think one of them that I was really happy about, which is, is that the book basically pissed off almost everybody, right? Um, that basically that there were people who were huge boosters of this economy who were basically like, ah, this guy's an idiot. He doesn't know anything. Uh, and frankly, there were a bunch of really strong tech critics being like, I disagree with this narrative. And you're right, right? I think you are right to point out that we're not just talking about Ray-Bans, right? You know, one of the really interesting kind of stories, which is related to some of the topics we're talking about, is um, that the ICO, right, Britain's uh, privacy regulator, released a postmortem on the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And, you know, if you recall that scandal, right, it was, okay, shady company acquires Facebook data, uses the Facebook data to do psychographic targeting, and thereby flips the Brexit vote. And, you know, what the ICO ultimately concluded in that, that investigation was, look, it's undoubtable this was a huge privacy violation, but we can't find any evidence that the psychographic targeting actually did anything. And, and so you're right. I mean, I do think that this cuts both against sort of the narrative of sort of the tech boosters and also the narrative of the tech critics who I think actually have reached some kind of detente where they both agree, okay, well, this stuff is really legit and we need to be really worried about it because it provides fuel for both of those sides to have the debate in the first place. Now, again, I don't think this is necessarily, you know, an argument for saying, okay, ergo sort of ads don't matter and we shouldn't worry about them. Um, I think one of the perverse impacts of what I'm talking about is, okay, you know, even though ads don't work, it still has created huge commercial incentives to collect enormous amounts of data about people, right? And, you know, if you're worried about sort of privacy, you're worried about surveillance, right? Like I think, you know, you should still be worried about ads. Uh, I just happen to believe that our critique of them doesn't necessarily have to rely on the idea that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has a mind control, Ray. I think the Cambridge Analytica example is is really interesting because what that story looks like years on is so different from the initial perception of it in the public totally, mind. Yeah. And I've been really interested in how the average person, if they have a memory of Cambridge Analytica, probably their memory of it is more in line with the original reporting of, mm -hmm. you know, Mark Zuckerberg's mind control ray. Um, <laughs> this was used to flip the Brexit vote. This was used to target American voters and win the election for Trump. Um, obviously, neither of which are, are, are true. And I'm sure some of that is just, you know, there's always a bias where we remember things better the first time around and forget the correction. Sure. But I am curious whether if you make anything of the of the stickiness of the kind of original narrative that these ads were are all powerful. Like, is there something that is desirable or attractive about the idea of an all powerful ad marketplace, even if it's malevolent like it, it seems like it's more appealing even in some sort of evil way perhaps than a marketplace that's just a bubble totally yeah i mean i think it's such a compelling narrative right I, mean, we, I think it's one of the reasons we need to sort of actively be pushing against it you know like like the vision of this kind of like ability to like calculate behavior and deliver messages that really kind of like influence you know voting behavior and and you know political behavior you know, that's that's an exciting story, right? Like even if I even if I hate the tech companies, even if I'm a huge tech critic, that's something to fight against, right? I think what we're ending up with, right, though, in the data is more of a picture of just sort of, you know, a kind of incompetence, right? <laughs> Which I think is is a lot less motivating. I think it's certainly a lot less compelling as a narrative. On some level, you sort of can't fault tech critics for adopting a lot of these claims that come out of industry 
um, because they're exciting claims, right? They like they capture the public imagination and can be used either to rally people for you know the big tech companies or against the big tech companies. And so I think the the pragmatics of it have caused that narrative to be. Uh, to be sticky because it's a lot more fun than being like, well, you know, 41% of ad data is, you know, potentially inaccurate. So as we complain about the opacity uh, of this market, I'm sort of thinking about what transparency might do and maybe some of the less welcome side effects. So, you know, I spend all my time thinking about content moderation. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, really interested in the effects that brand safety has on content moderation Mm. and the decisions that platforms make. And so brand safety loosely, you know, you can give your own framing, but I sort of think about it as the bucket of concerns that advertisers have about their ads appearing next to content that is unpleasant or harmful. And that doesn't get a lot of attention when we talk about content moderation. You know, normally we talk about highfalutin free speech principles, but actually it's a really key driver for how platforms think about you know, keeping their real customers, the advertisers happy in the content that appears on their sites. And if we gave advertisers a lot more information about, you know, how their ads are are operating and and transparency into the ecosystem, that would increase the leverage that they have. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, advertisers' ideas of like free speech rules and the optimal, you know, balance of content on platforms is probably not the same as mine. You know, they're probably (laughs) more averse to unpopular political viewpoints or controversial content um, that might be really important content. So, you know, how does brand safety play in to this whole ecosystem? So there's there's a couple of views on, uh, there's more than a couple of views on brand safety, but in this context, I think there's kind of like two ways you can sort of take it, right? Um, one, which I talk about in the book, is to use brand safety as basically a way of talking about how the market is really quite opaque, right? Which is that you have platforms that really want to do right by their advertisers. You have advertisers that really, really want to know where their ads are ending up. And as yet, brand safety continues to be a persistent problem, right? Where a huge brand will just have an ad end up next to, you know, a white supremacist uh, video, for instance. And, you know, one way of viewing it is, look, maybe the platforms don't have adequate incentives to really invest in solving this problem. The other one is actually maybe the market is just too big. Like it's really difficult, even when both sides really want to solve this problem, to kind of like resolve these, these sorts of issues. But I, I guess I tend to believe in the, the sort of former, um, which is basically that the platforms, you know, kind of worry about this, but because they don't think the advertisers are really going to flee en masse, they actually don't have like a very strong incentive to like invest in it. And it's, I guess, one of the reasons why I kind of think about this as a form of market failure. And I think it's a form of, um, you know, a potential place actually for like regulation to play a role, right? Where you know, th- I think it's very difficult to imagine a regime where the government tries to tell you whether or not an ad is going to work or not. But I do think that the government can play a really powerful role in helping to just provide more data about how this market is actually evolving and, and what the outcomes um, are in practice. And so, you know, what that would look like would be sort of like stronger mandates about, you know, a company's obligations uh, to report on, you know, brand safety incidents and, and monitoring. There's a second question, which I want to make sure I get right, right, which is like, you also had a question about like, okay, would that be a good thing, though, right? Like that, maybe it's actually a bad thing, or maybe that's actually a good thing that advertisers can't tell where their ads are ending up, because it accidentally ends up funding a range of speech, which may actually be better than what they would do if they knew about where their ads ended up. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, you know, I just have this sort of 
anxiety about mm. increasing the leverage that advertisers have in this ecosystem as well. Like it's kind of, you know, which devil do you prefer? Sure. Um, the, the giant evil platforms or the, you know, advertisers who, um, you know, who have their own uh, interests at stake. But I'm, you know, I'm not sure that increasing the transparency necessarily just between those two parties is going mm. to get us to better outcomes. Yeah, I think that's fair enough, right? I guess what I would say is, uh, like if advertisers are going to make those choices, like I would want them to make them with like, you know, data that we can all see and evaluate. Right. And, you know, that might not stop them necessarily from making those choices. But I, I think right now the problem is we actually haven't even gotten to like the first, you know, you know, in Maslow's hierarchy of transparency, we don't even really know the reality of the situation right now. And so I'd kind of prefer that we know about that. And then I think we can evaluate the questions of like, okay, what do advertisers do? like relative, relative to that. So you mentioned you got some, some pushback to the book. I'm curious what the most interesting or compelling pushback you received was and, and if it changed how you thought about your argument. I think there's, there's two takes uh, that were critical. I think one is good and one is bad. I'll start with the bad one first because I think a fun one, and I think it's worth just kind of driving the point home. And then I'll talk about the good one, which because once it was brought up to me, I kind of can't stop thinking about it. So the bad one is basically people who sort of make the argument, they're like, well, Tim, you know, some of the world's most sophisticated companies uh, spend millions of dollars on this ecosystem. And you don't really believe that they would put this money into this ecosystem if it didn't work, did you? And I think one of the really funny things is like, that's, that's what people, you know, before every single market bubble have said, right? Um, and we do have these really interesting cases, right? Where like, yeah, actually, it turns out that, you know, the case from last year, right, Aussie Media BuzzFeed did this great investigation where it just turned out that they were selling fraudulent ad impressions to, you know, JP Morgan and Visa and Amazon, companies you would think would have their sort of stuff together. And I think that the prevalence of fraud and the prevalence of big companies being defrauded um, is much higher than, than we think. So I think that's, that's the bad take. The really intriguing take that was brought up to me um, was from an unnamed person who has spent a very long career in the advertising industry. And who is basically like, Tim, you've got it all wrong. Advertising is, has nothing to do with selling a product. It has nothing to do with positioning a brand. Uh, it has everything to do with impressing other CEOs and other CMOs. And, you know, the really exciting, the reason why a CMO does a big ad campaign for the Super Bowl is because the CEO is watching the Super Bowl and they're really impressed, right? Um, and there's actually some precedent for this. So in the billboard industry, apparently it's like a not too infrequent practice that when a company buys billboards, you make sure that you put a couple of those billboards near the person whose house it is who bought the ad campaign. So they're driving along the road and they see their own billboard, they feel excited about it. And so this is like a totally weird inversion of a conception of what the economic role of ads is, which is it's a purely internal political role. And the reason why people buy ads is largely to kind of win the status game internally inside companies. Now, I don't know if that accounts for 100% of the ad market, but it's kind of interesting to think that it might constitute a fairly big segment of the ad market. Yeah, it's sometimes terrifying to think about how much of this whole system is dictated by different people, many of them 
men in Silicon Valley uh, <laughs> having battle, battles of egos, you know, like um, people went over to dinner and this person insulted this person and suddenly <laughs> here we are with this kind of outcome, whether it's advertisers or platform executives, uh, we are all just, uh, it, it's kind of uh, it's kind of hilariously at odds with the, the bad take that, that you mentioned sure. in the first one, which is like, Tim, you can't possibly say the market is failing, the market is perfect and the market will always operate sure, perfectly, right. <laughs> um, where it's actually, it's just these uh, like protagonists um moving the chess pieces around because they're like insulted or maybe you know had a hard time in 12th grade or whatever totally and i think it's almost the view of like advertising as a form of like large-scale like corporate therapy almost like you know (laughs) i thought my therapy was expensive that's exactly that's right i mean like i I, you know last time mark zuckerberg got hauled before congress there's a bunch of ads in the dc subway that were like facebook we care about integrity and information on the internet and I remember seeing those ads and being like, who, like, are they hoping a senator walks by? And they're like, oh, yeah, well, they really, they really care about this. The only conclusion I could come up with was, like, it makes Facebook feel really good to have those ads out there. And the dream that they could convince people with these ads is also a really good feeling. And I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe that, maybe that really does justify, you know, a few million dollars spend. I will say, as someone who spends a lot of time or used to pre-pandemic in the the DC metro, it is also true that when you get near Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. you start seeing a lot of ads for like armament companies, so right. like Raytheon. <laughs> and I have always wondered: is that supposed to, you know, trigger the thought of some congressional aide sitting on the metro? Like, you know what? We really should give them a contract. <laughs> Which I think just you know go, goes to your whole point. Totally, about how yeah, totally. We have no idea if ads work or not. Well, I've seen the launch for uh, like the metaverse uh, with Mark Zuckerberg in it. And the only explanation for that is it's some sort of therapy because he is not uh, the best actor to, to put in that video. So I think your your thesis is uh, it ha- has been proven and vindicated by that. Video. Totally. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, to return to the thesis of the book, right? Like, yeah, I guess if that's true, maybe we don't have a bubble, right? Like maybe, it, maybe this is actually really persistent, right? Because then it has absolutely nothing to do with <laughs> do ads actually reach people? Are they actually effective? People's egos will persist. This will never go away. Right, and we and we call and we call that the modern economy, right? Like that's, that's <laughs> right. what it is. Yeah. Um, well, this was a productive conversation. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> presuming that maybe we do still have a bubble. Um, there's been a million regulatory proposals uh, out at the moment on on the ways to fix the platform economy, and you mentioned uh, mm. antitrust uh, recently, and your dream or your your bullishness on people finally trying to un- uh, getting to understand sure. how this all works a little bit more, and all of us becoming ad ecosystem nerds, um, which I'm still very much at the at the start of that process. <laughs> Have you seen any proposals that you're excited about, or that you think get to some of the problems that you've identified? Well, no, not at the moment. Um, I am. I think the space around antitrust and the big tech companies is really fascinating at the moment. You know, the way I sort of view it is that we're sort of in this like weird period of Goldilocks almost, where you know, basically, like I think that there's a lot of people concerned about actually using antitrust for real, right? Like going in and breaking up, you know, Facebook and Google. And I think not so implicitly, like, I think the strong political counter argument is the companies arguing like, well, you wouldn't want to lose your tech advantage to China, would you? Which I think is actually like a really potent argument. And I think really does sort of hinder like the the potential success of an initiative to really kind of like break up the companies in, in a structural sense. At the other hand, I think we also have like things like the Honest Ads Act, right? Which like feel like very kind of slap on the wrist, like, I'll just like label the ads and we'll solve the, the disinformation problem. And there's this kind of like big kind of middle ground, which is, okay, what's, 
what's big enough to make it really hurt, but not so big that we're worried about the geopolitical consequences of what we're going to do. And, you know, I think there is still kind of a vacuum there at the moment. I, I happen to be bullish on sort of reform efforts in sort of the ad economy, because I do think it, A, you know, does hit the company where it hurts. Um, and B, I think really does have a chance to kind of like improve the functioning of the internet. But I haven't necessarily seen like a strong sort of like move in that direction just yet. So if if you were put in charge of targeted ad regulation, what what reforms would you implement in your perfect world? So, you know, the, the proposal that I would give is actually the proposal that's sort of in the book. You know, the title of the book obviously references 2008, but the sort of final chapter of the book kind of leans on what happened, you know, essentially after the Great Depression, right? Like sort of in the aftermath of that bust. And, you know, ultimately what was done there was actually touching on some things that we've already talked about, right? Which is, okay, you know, we don't necessarily want the government coming into the financial marketplace and saying, this stock is worth investing in, this stock is not worth investing in. And, you know, I think the same is true in the ad space, right? Particularly because people buy ads for all sorts of different reasons. Uh, instead, what was done there was to basically say, we're going to implement this regime whereby if you're going to offer shares of stock to the public, you have certain disclosure requirements. And if you commit fraud on those disclosure requirements, there's going to be some really strong penalties. Um, and I think there's actually some similar things that could be done here in the programmatic ad marketplace, right? So one really basic thing could be like, okay, so how do we improve sort of public accessibility of data on brand safety, right? I think that that's like a really key thing that could be done. Another one is like, could we implement rules around price transparency, right? So we evade or we we deal with some of the problems that came up in the the Texas uh, AG's sort of uh, litigation with Google. So I think that's that's a second thing that I would name. And, you know, I think then then the question is, can we actually give it teeth, right, to say, okay, as a company, when you, you know, disclose this information, right, if we find out later that this is actually not the case, you know, that there are financial penalties, there's maybe even personal liability penalties for the people who put out this information. Um, and, and that's kind of the regime that I'm sort of imagining in my sort of dream world. And so to keep pursuing that analogy to financial regulation, one of the key measures or, or planks of that regulatory structure is auditing mm -hmm. and verification of, you know, financial statements and, and balance sheets, yep. um, you know, because at the moment we have some transparency uh, and all of it, you know, all of the data that platforms release could be as accurate as Enron's financial statements and no one would be any sure. wiser. Yeah. Um, they could just be, you know, the result of monkeys dropping numbers on the floor and platforms picking them up and, and, and printing them. And so, you know, it, it seems to me like auditing might be a good first step. I'm generally sort of in favor of that, but there's also, you know, a whole bunch of problems with auditing and we sure. don't have any precedent for how do you audit a bunch of these systems. So what's your view? Would, would, would auditing auditing be a, a good solution here? And, and what's your view on third-party auditing? I read maybe a little bit of skepticism about it in your book, but I'm curious. I actually am I'm really favorable towards it. You know, <laughs> I, I think we can look to things like social science one, right, to conclude that like companies don't have the incentives for adequate candor in, in providing the data. And just to unpack that a little bit, I mean, our listeners should be aware of social science one. Sure. We've talked to Nate personally a couple of times uh -huh. and, and, and his frustration with that, but maybe yeah. you could just give a sentence or two. Uh, sure. It was a big initiative that was launched, I believe in 2018. The notion was basically that Facebook was going to let a limited set of academic researchers and I believe nonprofits get access to their social data in order to, you know, better investigate the problems of disinformation. Um, in practice, that has turned out to be very difficult to get any amount of useful data from Facebook. And, and so you're saying 
that some sort of more compulsory infrastructure auditing becomes totally necessary um and you know i think there actually is like genuinely a lot of deep intellectual work to be done here around basically creating what's in effect gap for marketing data and advertising data right like what are the standards that we actually want to operate in the space you know the body that would be creating this is the iab right which is the programmatic advertising's lobby uh and so i do think the notion of creating sort of like an independent you know, framework for doing this auditing work uh, would genuinely be really valuable. This is very exciting for me. This is the first time I can pull out the benefits of my accounting bachelor <laughs> degree uh, from several years ago. Gap, for those that are wondering, was the generally accepted accounting principles and uh, sort of standards, as you said, for auditing and, and reporting in the industry. Um, and it does strike me that it's a really big problem in this space that we just don't know. Like, how do we how do we report on content moderation or target advertising? Sure. What figures do we need? What kind of incentives do certain reporting require? create, you know, when I think about content moderation, if you're, you know, asking platforms to report how much content they take down, that incentivizes them taking down more content. And so it's not so simple as to just uh, think that introducing reporting or transparency doesn't actually change the underlying systems and the incentive structures of those systems as well. Yeah. So it's sort of, it's not just a uh, a copy paste, I guess, a job of, of other standards and it does become very tricky, but it also seems like, and you, you talk about this in the book as well, that some third party auditing is, is coming and that's driven a lot by advertisers who are like, hold on a second, <laughs> we want to know a little bit more about what's going sure, on here. Yeah. Um, but if we leave it for them to design these systems, platforms and advertisers, again, we go back to that other problem that I was referencing, which is you know, neither of those parties are necessarily perfectly aligned with the public interest in, in thinking about how to design. Yeah. And I don't want to understate it, right? Like what we're talking about is a, is a huge amount of work, right? And, and I think there's a lot of kind of like, you know, actually deep philosophical questions, right? About like, how do we report some of these numbers? And I think that that's part of my worry about the sort of, again, to go back to the kind of like the regulatory discussion is, you know, that I think it may be too much work for us to want to actually build you know, effective legislation around. And, you know, I do worry a little bit about like, we may just end up in kind of like this weird stable state where, you know, every eight months we call up a bunch of CEOs and yell at them in front of Congress. We get our, our two minutes of hate and we feel a lot better and it's cathartic. And then like nothing happens in part because I think a lot of the solutions really will require a lot of investment in work. And I'm not sure actually if, if we're, we're set up to do that right now from at least a legislative standpoint. You read in your book, you have this interesting line um, that I'll just quote from here, that the internet was predestined to be one way or another is an attractive but ultimately wrong idea. There is nothing essential about the internet as we know it. The internet is not inherently open or democratizing, nor is it inherently closed and authoritarian. Digging into the history of the internet quickly reveals that the present day internet is just one of many different information networks that could have come to be. So can you Talk a little bit about what you what you mean by that. What what are those possible alternative histories, and is it still possible to reach them? So this is a topic that's been very much on my mind recently. You know, I got very I went to college largely because I was like I was like very excited about becoming a software engineer, um, and then I read uh, Larry Lessig's uh, Free Culture, right, and became like this diehard tech policy person, and just like have just been working on that kind of stuff ever since. And, you know, it's something I've been reflecting on a lot, right, which is like a lot of the rhetoric about the internet in the early 2000s was this notion that there was something, you know, deeply 
predestined about the internet, right? That, okay, well, the internet was going to be this open protocol. Uh, and, you know, the great thing about open protocols is that it's impossible for authoritarian governments to resist it, right? Like once a, a country gets the internet, you know, authoritarianism becomes impossible. Obviously, that was that was very wrong, right? That that hypothesis is is totally kind of incorrect. And, you know, this is the source of a, a book club that I'm actually hosting this year to kind of reread all of those books from the early 2000s and be like, okay, so what is it about the internet that we actually believe now? Like, is there a way to be optimistic about the internet without being a terrible person? You know, those types of questions. And and this is kind of the point I'm trying to make in in the passage that you quoted, right? Which is, okay, part of my my belief in what sort of failed in a lot of the early rhetoric about the internet was this notion of, okay, you've got this internet. Once the internet thing arrives, a certain set of consequences necessarily follow, Right. But it turns out like the internet's vast and unknowable, and you can also set up the internet in lots and lots and lots of different ways. And so, you know, I think it's wrong, you know, you know, to be an extremist in either direction, right? To basically say, oh, well, the internet is necessarily great and open because of X, Y, Z reasons. I think it's also wrong to be like, well, the internet is just like trapped in this cycle of, you know, polarization, right? And disinformation, and we're, we're going to be unable to escape because that's just the nature of the internet. I think the the deeper conversation to be having is, okay, are there ways of designing, you know, a different internet, right? And so if you look in internet history, right, you've got BBSs and you've got FidoNet and you've got all these kind of other alternative versions of the internet that could have come to be. Um, and so I try to, I don't know, this is maybe my way of maintaining a kind of optimism is to believe that, yeah, we we really can, you know, kind of push the internet in a different sort of direction. And, you know, I guess to kind of directly answer your question, right, like, do I think that is possible I think so, right? And I think it can happen a number of different ways, right? One of them, which is argued by the book, which is crisis, right? Like you build a bubble, it blows up, and then you have to say, okay, what do we do next? I think another one that I think a lot about is also like norms. One of the really interesting things about sort of the internet is that I think we've just come to accept that the internet features advertising and works in a very particular kind of way. And I do think that if you're able to kind of persuade people to treat sort of the internet differently to come to it with different expectations, then you do actually have a very powerful tool for reshaping what the internet looks like. So it isn't necessarily the technology forces certain social outcomes. I think there's a way of thinking about the social outcomes forcing the sort of technology outcomes. Although to push back on that a little bit, advertising and attention has kind of been at the heart of every public sphere that has ever existed mm. in a way. You talk about advertising being at the heart of the internet and sure. sort of just trying to imagine an alternative future, which sounds very exciting, uh, <laughs> sign me up. But, uh, you know, if you look at newspapers and you look at the radio and, and, and cable and things like that, I mean, it's always been driven by by ads and the attention economy. And one of the reasons why newspapers are, are, are going under all over the place is because they were so reliant on advertising sure. and now platforms are, are eating their lunch. So is that, do you think there's something about the, the internet that makes it possible that it could be more immune to that incentives? Or, you know, am I just being too pessimistic to say, come <laughs> on, Tim, it's inevitable. This is the way the world runs. Yeah, there's a there's a funny anecdote, actually, is um, there's this great book from, I think, over a decade now called The Victorian Internet, which is about the rise of the telegraph. And um, even before the electronic telegraph, there was a thing called the visual telegraph, which was literally a building that was shaped like a lighthouse that would have these shutters on top that you would open and close. And so that someone like 10, 15 miles away could be like, oh, okay, they're signaling to me that, you know, bad weather is coming or whatever. And a huge network of these visual telegraphs, as they were called, were built in, in France at the time. And one of the first use cases that was <laughs> proposed for it was, oh, this would actually be a great way to advertise, you know, crop prices and things. 
And so, so yeah, I think, you know, it picks up on a point that I think you were trying to make, which I actually very much agree with, which is that I'm not sort of an extremist around ads in the sense that I feel like, you know, the internet should never feature ads at all, right? Clearly, I think there's a lot of things that are really great about ads, right? One of them we've already talked about is the fact that ads make services widely accessible to people. I think the question that we're really confronting is, should ads be a monoculture in the economy in a way that kind of powers this entire communications network, right? Um, and I think my answer to that question is no, right? Like, I, I don't think that it's very safe to have an economy that is so dependent on this single sort of market, right? And so, you know, the sort of internet that I envision is one that just has a more diverse set of funding sources, right? That we're talking about ads, we're talking about whether or not subscription can scale. Um, you know, the, those types of experiments are kind of what I want to see. And the question is whether or not we want this dependence, not necessarily whether or not we want ads at all. So I, I would be remiss if I, I didn't note that you're not just an observer of this space. As you said, you're you're also a practitioner. So you're previously the global public policy lead for artificial intelligence and machine learning at Google, and you're now general counsel at, at Substack. I'm interested if you can talk about it at all, how that's those experiences have shaped your understanding of the dynamics you describe in the book, particularly Substack, just because it's presented itself as sort of offering an opportunity for for writers working online to work outside the strictures of a market developed to sell attention. So let me start with Google and then can talk a little bit about uh, Substack and the kind of current work there. So for Google, you know, Google was really kind of in some ways the origins of the book. You know, when I was working there, obviously I was working on AI and machine learning, very hot at the time. Uh, but I think one of the things that most struck me about the whole experience was the the degree to which people actually don't talk about ads at the company on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, the culture of the engineers there, the culture of the product managers there are people who are like really excited to talk about self-driving cars and AI and all those types of topics. But the ad sort of ecosystem that really funds most of nearly everything at the company, you know, is kind of strangely absent from the culture. And, you know, I guess it impacted me in that, you know, it's intriguing to me that like here, you know, in the center of Silicon Valley, talking to engineers that work at one of the biggest ad companies in the world, you know, even they can't necessarily give a good account for how the system works. And so, you know, I think that ever had a very direct sort of inspiration on the book insofar as it was like, can we just have a good explainer here as to what's going on? You know, for Substack, uh, I think it's this kind of intriguing question, you know, to go back to a question that was posed earlier, right? Like, I think there's some people where you say, okay, so what do you think is the future of the internet? And they're like, oh, it's going to be micropayments on the blockchain, right? And I guess I'm a little bit old fashioned, right? Like, I think that like, maybe the different internet is just a subscription internet, right? Like one where we would pay for content, essentially. And so, you know, I will say one of the things that really drew me to Substack is sort of the notion that you might be able to get subscription to scale. And to go to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, that we actually, if you do it well enough, you know, might be able to change the norms around how people approach content, right? So one of the big battles of moving off the ad-based internet is that the psychological price of all content on the internet is $0 and zero cents. If you can change the norms where people say, oh, actually, I expect to pay for some of this content, right? And you can do that at a big enough scale, right? That really suddenly starts to change what's possible in terms of business model. And so I guess one of the reasons I'm excited about Substack, though, you know, obviously I can't speak for the whole company, is sort of the notion that, you know, you could make subscription scale and it can almost be a way of sort of behaviorally scaffolding um, a different way for people to sort of engage with content online to wit, you know, that they're willing to pay for it. So to close us out, I wanted to kind of zoom out and, and ask a, a big picture question. I'm curious 
if or how your your arguments about the failures of targeted advertising shapes your assessment of the the sort of suite of problems facing the internet and the information ecosystem today. We've already touched on how you know there there's often this view of the sort of the dangerous effectiveness of targeted advertising, and I think that's often linked to arguments about the danger of disinformation because it depends sure. on uh, this this idea that people are easily persuadable by what they see online. On the other hand, Joe Bernstein pointed to your book and his big Harper's piece on the sort of the disinformation industrial complex to argue that concerns about disinformation are overblown precisely because if ads don't work as well as we think they do, then perhaps, you know, Russian trolls posting online can't change your mind either. So I'm curious if if you think he's right. And if we accept your argument about the failure of ad tech, what do you think we should be paying more or less attention to? in the conversations about the future of the internet and the challenges it's facing. So let me kind of address the sort of kind of specific frame that you use, then I can kind of like go to the sort of broader question. You know, there is implications certainly for the argument that I'm making about sort of the debates that we have around disinformation, misinformation online. Um, and I think there's kind of two ideas that I'd sort of put forth. Um, I, I would say I don't necessarily agree with Joe on everything, but I think he is making a number of good points. One, which I think is really critical, is to think about what the sources of the problem are, right? So there was a narrative, I think, that definitely cropped up after 2016, which is, okay, it's these micro-targeted ads, which are really responsible for the, the great deal of disinformation that we really need to be worried about on the internet. You know, I, I think the, the sort of argument about, you know, sort of commercial ads, right, Ray-Bans, you know, should make us skeptical that it really is this kind of ad infrastructure, which is at the heart of the disinformation concern or set of problems. Um, so I think the, the first thing is that we may need to change our story about sources, like where is the origin of the problem? You know, I think a second one, which is sort of really intriguing that I've been thinking a lot about is, okay, if a Russian troll can't necessarily change a mind, does the presence of the Russian troll still have corrosive impacts on democracy, for instance? And I think that's actually sort of an interesting outcome or maybe one way of kind of thinking about the problem, right? Which is, okay, imagine a world in which all sort of Russian campaigning never actually had an impact on any vote whatsoever, but we are very aware that a state-backed campaign is attempting to meddle in uh, our electoral processes, right? That itself actually may be really corrosive outside of its actual ability to exert, you know, mind control, Right. Um, it may be the interference itself, which is actually the problem and, and the deeper issue and its impact on democracy. And so there's actually kind of an interesting set of outcomes, which is like, we may actually want to act to counter, for example, these types of campaigns, not necessarily because we're necessarily worried about people being persuaded, but we, that we think that their presence alone has certain impacts on democratic norms, right? And so, you know, I think it also changes, the argument I'm making in the book also changes a little bit of what we think about as sort of the risks of the things that are happening, right? That are genuine sort of disinformation campaigns. You know, okay, then, then, then I think there's a broader frame, right? Which is, okay, then what are the implications for your book on kind of like the future of the internet as a whole? Um, and I guess I'd return to just like a little coda that I talked about with subscriptions a little bit earlier, right? Which is that it ends up being really key to sort of think about whether or not there's a way of sort of influencing what people expect when they come to the internet. And, and I think that's so key, particularly when we think about things like psychological price, right? Which is, okay, it's really difficult to get subscription to work if you can't convince people that content is worthwhile to pay for. And, you know, again, I think that, like, when we think about the future of the internet, I do think we need to, do need to think a little bit more about, like, 
more than just like how do we design products or how the technical setup of these platforms work. I do really think we need to think about sort of like the norms that people bring to the internet. Um, and, and I think that's actually a key part of thinking about and predicting where the internet's ultimately going to go. All right, let's leave it there. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare podcast series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Hamza Shitu, and our producer is Jen Pajia Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast in whatever app you use and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon. As always, thanks for listening.